Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth for to all to whom I send you, you shall go and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See that I sit, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels, angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which to work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, 
all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things there that were done by him. Father, we thank you that you are good and strange to us, that we're made in your image, yet you're beyond our thoughts and our ways, as we sang earlier. We beg you in this moment of worship for you to speak to us powerfully, that we may continue the vocation you've given us each individually and as a church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome, welcome. Just when you think summer has a little bit of reprieve, just when you think it's going to be a little cooler, it does not be cooler. (laughs) Grammar I am good at. I'm so glad that you're here. Tonight, I want to take the interplay of these three lessons, Jeremiah, Hebrews, and Luke, and answer the question, what does the church's vocation have to do with the brokenness of the world? Which, that's probably a question you ask yourself, you know, while you're getting ready in the morning. What does the church's vocation have to do with the brokenness of the world? But seriously, what does the church's vocation have to do with the brokenness of the world? The way that these three lessons come to us, they, they say something together that we, we might not see if they were separated. Not only that, but they touch on three of our different values here at St. Bart's. I love our values. I can sometimes name them by memory, so I will try now. Authenticity. Wholeness and healing, hospitality, mystery, and rootedness. Wow, good job, Jay. High five. So some of those values will be touched on tonight from what we see in Holy Scripture. I want to start with this idea of brokenness. We see the woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. Luke chapter 13. It's in your bulletin, it's on your Bible, it's in, on your phone, etc. And what do we notice about this woman? She's at synagogue, so she must have been a Jew or a believing Jew or somebody who's been converted, but she's at the synagogue. And for me, for our sermon tonight, she represents the sort of general brokenness that's out there. You and I have been the, we've experienced things that have been done wrong to us. We see all over the world, it's, it's hard not to see whether, you know, pick your poison in terms of how you consume uh, current events, etc., whether it be television or social media or newspaper or whatever, but we see brokenness, and it's, and it's not like it's gotten better. Modernism told us that with, you know, with our reason, in logic and in the power of humankind, we can solve all of humankind's problems. And the, the century that was supposed to demonstrate that, the 20th century, turned out to be the most, uh, the century full of the most murder and war and casualty history has probably ever seen. And so now here we are, 19 years, golly, 19 years into the 21st century. Where has time gone? And it's not looking like things are getting better. And the brokenness of the world, things we've done, things done to us, things that we see in society, the birth pangs perhaps of creation, 
the brokenness of the world is more and more evident. And again, the question is, what does the church's vocation have to do with any of that? And we see this woman, and Jesus encounters her in a space of worship. The synagogue was the place where God's word was read, the law, the prophets, the Psalms. Not only, it was read a lot like how we read God's word, where you had a lector or a reader get up and read from the scroll, and the people would respond. And a psalm would be taken, perhaps responsively. And then there'd be another lesson. So in this place where God's word was read and proclaimed, Jesus encounters this woman who had the experience of a disabling spirit. Now, we know that Luke is trying to demonstrate something. He's trying to tell us something in Luke chapter 13. That it's not because this woman had done something to deserve this disabling spirit that she was disabled. I had called my brother because the car that I bought from him all of a sudden had a dead battery. It just happens. But I called him, because, not to blame him, I called him because I couldn't get into the car. See, it's a very fancy car that everything's electronic on it. And I, and I thought to myself, okay, I have a key and there's a keypad on the side of the door, but where's the hole for the key? How do I get this key into a hole in the door to unlock the door? And so, of course, he said, let me Google that for you. <laughs> found the video show me but it was one of those moments uh, and he didn't say this but it was one of those moments like well what what did you do now and he, he's a very long-suffering and wonderful brother but wh- what did you do now Jay well I didn't do anything to deserve this and Jesus gets posed a similar question at the beginning of Luke chapter 13 what about those Galileans on whom the tower fell or those with whom Pilate mixed their blood with the sacrifice And Jesus said, neither of them were sinners for that to have happened to them. And so the implication carries through to this story. This little girl, this woman now, didn't do anything to deserve or bring this upon her. That's a favorite epithet, isn't it? Well, they brought it upon themselves. They didn't do anything. It just was. It was part of the brokenness, the reality of the day, and the reality of our day. And in that space of worship, on the separate time and space that the Hebrew people, taking their cue from God's divine initiative, they had gathered on the Sabbath to worship, Jesus encounters her in healing, and he frees her. Can you guess which value this is gonna talk about? Wholeness and healing. Now, the synagogue ruler, so somebody that might look like me, nice, perfectly trimmed beard, tortoiseshell glasses, no, but the synagogue ruler is indignant. After all, he has a job to do. He has to carry on the institution of the synagogue. You've got six other days to be healed. Be healed on any of those days. Be my guest. But on the Sabbath day, we're not to do work. In his zealotry to preserve his interpretation of the word of God, he had forgotten the word of God. 
that we can't help but think of Isaiah 58, when Isaiah is speaking of a true fast. Is not a true fast for the untying of the yoke, for setting free? And so Jesus uses an image to say, don't you let your animals loose on the Sabbath to have a drink of water? Don't you help your donkey or your ox? Can we not help this dear one of mine? In a space and time of worship, despite the ineptitude of the synagogue leader, Jesus, the living God, incarnate, Christ himself encounters this woman to deliver her from the disabling spirit that she had had for 18 years, a fruit of the brokenness of the world that she lived in and that you and I live in. So there's the brokenness. What about vocation? Let's look at Jeremiah's call. Vocation simply means a call. It comes from the Latin word vocare, to call. And we see that God has spoken clearly to Jeremiah. And, and it's easy in the, in the malaise of all the bad and the awful that we see and hear and, and is preached to us, not preached, but that is spoken to us all the time, whether it be in the 24-hour cable news cycle or whatever it may be. It's, it's hard to remember the specificity of God's goodness and love. And that's what God's call to Jeremiah reminds us of. That there's a specificity there. Look what the Lord God says to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Now, God didn't make me or, or any of you to be a prophet to the to the nation of Judah to, to prophesy and preach for repentance so that their nation would not be destroyed and carried off into captivity. But he is the one who knows us before we were formed in our mother's womb. There's an alarming and beautiful specificity of God's love that he has for us. It's easy to discount that, isn't it? It's easy to say, oh, well, you know, that's Jeremiah, or that's the Bible, or not me. Especially when we live in a world where it's the masses. We're more faceless and nameless, even though we have our own platforms on our own microblogs, with all of our own pictures of ourselves all over the place. We've lost our sense of identity, of being created, not just of being someone, but more importantly, of having the gift of being created and known and loved no matter what. So what precedes God's call to Jeremiah to go and, and preach and to break down and to destroy and to build up and to plant an arduous task, no doubt. What precedes that is God's knowledge of him. And the delight God has in speaking that over Jeremiah. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Now, when God issues the call to Jeremiah, 
to be a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah does what we might do. He says, oh God, no. I can't do that. I can't be a prophet to the nations. Verse six, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. And we get a glimpse of sort of the inner battle that Jeremiah is going to have over the rest of his time of ministry. But we know and we see that he gets stronger and stronger and stronger. But when God calls us, we can battle with that, can't we? We can doubt. We can say, oh, well, I, you know, I imagine things. I think things up. Oh, it's just whatever. It's not important. But again, there's the specificity of God's call. And what does God say back to Jeremiah? <laughs> Don't tell me, Jeremiah, I'm only a youth. For, all, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. God reinforces this call and gives Jeremiah not only this sense of identity that before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, but he gives him this sense of specific identity that I'm going to tell you to go places and to speak to people and you're going to do it. And what does he say? Do not be afraid of them for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. God knows each one of us exactly as we are and he knows us as he is drawing us into transformation as, as in our parlance here at St. Bart's as we behold God and become more like him he knows that and he sees that and he loves us all the more this is our value of authenticity and in that he has a call for us he has a job to do if you will but what precedes that is our being. From our being, our heart, flow our acts of will. Our heart contains our, our affect and our cognition and our volition. It's the center, really the center of who we are. When, when St. Paul prays for the church at Ephesus, and I pray that you may be strengthened in your inner being, he is praying about their heart, the seat of who they are. And God speaks to each one of us in that place to give us a call. Something to fulfill, a mission to fulfill, a purpose to be engaged in. But it begins with our being and from that being flows our doing. That is something that you discern with God. That is something that you discern with God in community. But that is something that is true for every follower of Christ, no matter what it looks like. There's nothing that's too important and there's nothing that's too unimportant in the world's eyes. God has a call for you, a Vocation, And we think about us as the church. This, this local manifestation of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, God has a vocation, a call for St. Bart's. Something that he knew before he formed us 
in our mother's womb, if you will. But what in general is the vocation of the church? Remember that first question I had? What does the vocation of the church have to do with the brokenness of the world, if anything? And we see a glimpse of the vocation of the church in Hebrews 12. Now listen, listen here, children. When there's a verse in our lessons about worship, what am I gonna talk about? He's probably gonna talk about worship. But it's not worship like you think it's worship. It's not like worship, like just songs and smoke and lights and all that kind of stuff. It's worship. Hebrews 12, did you catch the value, by the way? Authenticity, did we talk about that already? Golly, y'all. I need to be better about following my notes and staying on task. It's the ADD, it kicks in all the time without my permission, it just happens. So if God has called us to, to bring about wholeness and healing and there's this element of authenticity that God knows who's, who we are individually and as St. Bart's and as the, the Catholic Church, he knows that who we are and he loves us anyway and he's calling us forward to minister and we realize that part of our vocation and maybe the answer to what our vocation is, is that it's Worship. Look what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. Read it with me. We won't read the whole thing. Man. Talk about raising the stakes. You haven't come to what may be touched. He's clearly talking about Sinai, right? Remember Mount Sinai? It's in the Old Testament, OT for short. And that's where Moses received the law, received the covenant from God, and delivered it to the people. That was a terrifying moment, a moment so awful that the people, not even their animals, the ones that we unyoke and untie on the Sabbath to get water, not even the animals could touch Mount Sinai because what would happen? They would die. Yeah, I guess that's more lamb for dinner. You haven't come to that. Blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, sound of a trumpet, voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Literally, the people of Israel said, Stop! We cannot take it any longer! What have we come to then? What is this all about, O oh, author of Hebrews? But you, verse 22, have come to Mount Zion. Oh, I like that. Tell me more. What's Mount Zion? It could, it could be any number of things. It's a specific geographic place. It can be a symbol for the place of God's presence. It can be God's chosen holy mountain. It can be the city of God. You have come to the place that God has chosen. Think about it too, the people that God has chosen. We'll get to that in a second. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. In Hebrew, the living God, the word is El Chai the God of energy, vitality, and wrath. This living God, remember from last week how Jesus put himself in the place of those being judged to satisfy the wrath of God? You have come to the city of the living God, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Now remember, this is in the context of now, therefore, since you're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, do you see what's happening here? The author of the Hebrews is, is painting us a picture 
that's both this present reality that we have now where we participate in something that is both heavenly and earthly, but it's also something that is coming to us. It's the kingdom that is and is to come. It's the kingdom that is already, but not completely yet. And so these who have followed Christ, to whom he's writing, have come to innumerable angels and festal gathering. Okay, now it's starting to sound a little bit like a totally dope worship service. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The word assembly is the word ecclesia. That's the word church. Now we see what he's talking about. You've come into the church. You've come to be part of the people of God. Sinai was crazy. But what you've come to is greater. And you get to step into it. Look look at the qualification. To the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all. God's not any less God. There's not two different gods. We're not Marcionites, where God in the Old Testament's mean and bad and ugly, and God in the New Testament's good. No. Same God to the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, not because of what they've done, but because of what Christ has done, verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the word, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So part, okay, time, time out. What's part of this worship? Innumerable angels. Those enrolled in heaven. There's a city, Mount Zion. There's God, who's the judge, but we're invited into his presence. And at the center of it all is what? A sacrifice. Now, the book of Hebrews uses this word, it's ephapax, that the sacrifice has once for all. It doesn't happen over and over and over and over and over again. We're not pagans. We don't have a cyclical religion where every year we celebrate that it happens over again and it's actually happening again. No, it happened one time, but because, as the book of Hebrews says, his blood was offered by the eternal spirit, its effects are good for all time, both before it happened and after it happened. So there's a sacrifice that all of this is gathered around. And he gets to his point. Don't refuse him who's speaking. Skip down to 28. Therefore, because of all these things, because the heavens are going to be shaken, unless they're those things that are unshakable, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The church's vocation is worship. The church's vocation is worship. Worship is mission. It's all the things that we think of that the church does but it is the great and mysterious umbrella over them. It's being in the presence of God so that we can do and be mission. Let's rephrase that. It's being in the presence of God so that we can be and do 
mission. It is being in the presence of God so that we can be and do evangelism. It is being in the presence of God so that we can serve the poor, so that we can work for wholeness and healing for those who have not received it, so that we can call people into the presence of God, so that we can put them in front of our Lord Jesus Christ who sacrificed, who gave of himself to redeem the entire world. That's what you've come to, the author of the Hebrews says. Do you not see? That's what you've come to. So what does the vocation of the church have to do with the brokenness of the world? Everything. Without the worship of God, we cannot hear the word of God. Without the worship of God, we cannot be fed with the body and blood of Christ. Now listen, I get it. I know you can read your Bible at home. I want you to read your Bible at home or wherever you want to read your Bible. I get it. You can sing wherever you want to sing. You should. But something divine happens because God. God initiates God invites, he wants us to stand face to face with him so that he can breathe into us his divine life, so that we can breathe out his praise, and so that we can be a people who are caught up in that mystery. Out of that mystery flows wholeness and healing, authenticity, hospitality, rootedness, all the things that we seek to be in order that we may do the work of God. Hmm. Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, says this about worship. And he says, why we need worship in word and sacrament so, so desperately. Word and sacrament together call us back over and over into the strangeness and the challenge of who Jesus is. Our vocation is to not forsake the assembly of the firstborn, but with reverence and awe to perform the service of worship. That's that Greek word, latruo. We're performing an act of worship before God. But the irony of it is, is that when we put ourselves before him in this act of worship, he is encountering us in concrete and real ways to transform us, empowering us to encounter the brokenness of the world around us, that it would be our delight, that it would be our vocation as individuals and as the church to encounter that brokenness with healing. Let us pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the mystery of who you are and of what you've done in us individually, corporately, and what you're doing in our midst here at St. Bart's. We pray over and over again that you would continue to transform us, simply that we might be broken bread and poured out wine for a lost and dying world who desperately needs to feast from you. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.